Hey, welcome back to another in our special series of the FDIC podcast we call Banking on Inclusion. I'm Brian Sullivan with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Today, we continue a conversation that we've been having along with the National Bankers Association about access to credit and the role minority banks play in meeting the financial needs of people and places where, if not for these banks, there may not be a bank at all. Today, we look at the particular needs of those living in rural parts of our country, places where the physical presence of a bank takes on added importance. A quick housekeeping note, any opinions expressed here may not necessarily reflect those of the FDIC. Well, you've heard us on this podcast talk about mission-driven banks or financial institutions with a purpose to serve those communities that may be underserved. And among those places, rural communities. We'll be joined by a couple of people on the front lines of providing that access to capital in rural America. But first, let's welcome back to the FDIC podcast, Nicole Elam. Nicole is president and chief executive of the National Bankers Association, a nearly century-old organization representing the nation's minority financial institutions. Hey, welcome back, Nicole. Thank you for having me, Brian. Good to be back. When you hear about banking in rural America, what comes to mind? Is it a a market opportunity for banks to expand into the hinterland? Or is it a challenge given that many of these communities we'll be talking about are effectively located in banking deserts? You know, that is a great question. When I think about rural banking in America, I think about the unique banking needs of the community. In fact, that's what distinguishes mission-driven community lenders from big banks. They're focused on the unique needs of that community. So whether rural or urban, black or brown, indigenous, unbanked, underbanked, underinvested, it all goes back to the unique banking needs, which I know we're going to jump right into. But from where you sit, what are those particular banking needs in rural communities? You know, no rural community is the same, but there are some unique qualities about the banking needs in rural communities. And one big unique rule or unique thing is how they bank, which you alluded to at the start of this podcast. Rural Americans depend on physical bank branches and smaller banks to bank. Uh, And I know we're going to talk more about that. And I think a key reason why they uh, bank and physical bank branches is because of the demographics. When you think about rural America, they tend to be older in rural versus urban Americas. The rates of poverty are higher in rural areas compared to urban areas. And despite the population shrinkage, which we've seen in this most recent census data, rural America is becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. And so I think how they bank being in branches is really driven by their demographics. But I think another unique thing about the banking needs of rural communities is around credit. You know, rural Americans are less likely to have a credit history. And so if you were to plug them into a large bank's algorithm, their credit needs aren't going to be met. And so rural consumers without credit histories have a much more difficult time accessing credit, particularly when they need it most, such as to fill a short-term income gap or to recover from a natural disaster or to seek new opportunities. And so because they're uh, less likely to have credit histories, they're more likely to seek and use credit from non-banks. And as a result, rural consumers are paying more for their credit given where they're seeking it from. And so in short, credit and capital doesn't tend to be as affordable for rural America. Hmm. Is the absence of a bank more keenly felt in rural parts than in, say, cities or suburbs? 
Absolutely. You know, the absence of a bank is more keenly felt in rural areas than in cities or suburbs. And I think it's for three main reasons. One, they're more likely to depend on bank branches. Um, two, they're less likely to have those branches close. And so as a result, they're having to travel further for them. And three, they're less likely to use internet banking or have access to internet banking. And so as I mentioned, rural Americas depend on physical bank branches and on smaller banks. Uh, in 2019, pre-pandemic, you saw nearly nine and 10 rural households were visiting a bank branch. So they were going into the bank branch. And that's despite the fact that many of these rural communities lack access to a physical branch, meaning they're going into a bank branch that they may have to fur uh, travel further to get to. And so when there's lack of access to physical branches, it means that they are relying more on phone conversations or online resources, which becomes even more of a problem in rural areas that may not have access to spectrum or broadband. And so all of these things are really compounded. Well, Nicole, we're going to get into this with our two bankers coming up. I just want to thank you so much for touching base with us and returning to the FDIC podcast. It's really always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, now let's turn to two bankers who indeed work to bring access to capital and credit into rural America. Donna Gambrell leads Appalachian Community Capital, a group of more than 30 CDFIs located across the Appalachian region, and Kent Curtis, president and CEO of First Southwest Community Bank based in rural Colorado. So Donna, let's begin with you. What are the differences that borrowers experience um, accessing capital in uh, rural communities uh, versus uh, cities and suburbs? So Brian, in, in a lot of cases, what you'll see is that there are similarities in the challenges that borrowers in both urban and rural markets face. But there are some distinctions, I think, in rural communities. First of all, and I'm thinking specifically of Appalachia, where you have seen decades of underinvestment or uninvestment uh, in those uh states that comprise Appalachia, which is all of West Virginia and portions of 12 other states. And because of that underinvestment, it has been particularly challenging for small businesses to access affordable capital. You have within rural communities not the same level of infrastructure that you might have in urban markets. So you don't have the national banks uh, necessarily in Appalachia or the national foundations. You don't have the same level of infrastructure, and therefore it becomes even more difficult for small business owners to find uh, institutions or organizations that are willing, frankly, to uh, put in capital, to invest in capital in them simply because they don't exist in the region itself. You also have uh, geographies where, uh, you know, you don't have um, communities that are necessarily physically close together. There is a great uh, distance between uh, one community and another. So you don't have, for example, uh, banks on every corner or branches on every corner. If there are institutions, people often have to travel long distances to even get to banks. And so it leaves not a lot of options and a lot of choices for people who are living in rural communities as it relates to finding affordable uh, capital. Yeah, Kent, are you, do you feel the same way? What are the unique needs of those in the communities you serve? I would say it's very similar to what Donna mentioned. Um, you know, big picture wise, we also don't have national banks in our markets. As a matter of fact, uh, we have a market where we're the only bank. Um, 
and it actually has to close over the lunch hour. So they have the tool control and they both employees is we have two employees in that branch. Mm. They go to lunch and, uh, and the town knows not to go down there at that time. Um, but, uh, you know, big picture wise, uh, where we do have a national bank in our market, it was through an acquisition. And I, I think that's a problem in rural America is that a lot of times during those acquisitions, the capital leaves the rural community and goes to maybe an urban area where it can be deployed faster um, and, and more of a profit too. So there, to me, there's a depletion in capital in rural America, um, kind of based on the bank, the current banking model. And as well, but I would add that uh, I think fintechs are trying to maybe fill that and and make uh, capital available uh, in rural parts, but generally it's it costs more, um, and they don't uh, they don't have a full understanding of the local community because they're they're a fintech and they're they're doing it through a computer. So I think I think there's a couple problems. Last March the FDIC noted that uh, we, as a nation, lost more than 2,500 deposit-taking bank branches last year and 18,000 over the last decade. What does it mean, and I'll throw this out to the both of you and maybe Kent will begin with you, what does it mean when a rural community loses what might be the only bank in town? Well, access to capital um, obviously, as well as any kind of initiative to to keep that community thriving or moving forward, at least, um, they usually take a step back. Actually, uh, you know, we work on that. We try to make sure that our communities, our rural communities, which a lot of times we're, uh, like I mentioned, sometimes we're the only bank in that community. We want to make sure that we're supporting, uh, especially small business, because small business helps create jobs and create wealth. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> How about you, Donna? I, I, I agree totally. I mean, again, in Appalachia, what you have are folks with a very strong entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you oftentimes have small businesses leading the way, being the anchor in many communities that attract uh, housing, that attract other types of businesses. If those small businesses, which are really the backbone of a community, aren't able to get access to that capital, then it affects the entire community. And I think what happens, too, is that when you lose that bank, I mean, I, I worked for the FDIC for almost 20 years. I understand the importance of banks and banks banking in particular in communities. And I think when you lose that bank, you lose a lot. So you have CDFIs certainly that have stepped into the breach in many cases in these communities. But most of those CDFIs are loan funds. They're nonprofit loan funds. They're not depository institutions. And so in many ways, they have limitations uh, because they cannot take a customer and move that customer into a banking relationship because the bank is no longer there. And that really is one of the roles of a CDFI. We are kind of the on-ramp and the bank is the highway. So we love you know, working with customers. We love grow, helping those customers grow, but always with the idea that those customers are actually going to move into a banking relationship and begin to even build further their uh, assets, 
build generational wealth, finance small businesses even more, uh, finance education, buy homes and all of that. Without a bank there, which can be a wonderful complementary partner to a CDFI, uh, it becomes even more difficult. What do each of you see as the number one challenge, maybe the number one opportunity that you see for the inst- for institutions like yours? Uh, Donna, you first. Well, I think this is, you know, we talk about this being a moment in time for CDFIs. We, we saw that when uh, the Paycheck Protection Program was underway and banks were turning to CDFIs to work with them to bring their customers on board and get through the process of getting uh, guarantees through SBA for their small businesses. And it's, Brian, I've been doing this for a long time. It's probably the first time in my career that I saw people really pay attention to the CDFI industry and say, oh, okay, wait a minute, there's a whole other group of folks out there that are doing this work, and it's important work that they're doing. So I do think we have to take advantage of this moment. Uh, We're seeing not only great visibility, we're seeing funding in the form of um, funding uh, through Treasury, not only to CDFI banks and MDIs, but also to loan funds as well through separate programs, either coming from Treasury directly or through the CDFI fund by way of Treasury. And so for us, it really is looking at ways in which we can continue to have impact and to have sustainable impact. Uh, And so that's a great opportunity. The challenge of that is that whenever you have any sort of capital coming into an organization, you have to make sure that it's going to be long-term capital. So, so oftentimes, and again, I see this in rural communities, but I suspect that it happens in urban markets as well. Investors or funders will come in and they'll say, oh, we love what you're doing. Let us fund you for a couple of years. Well, community and economic development take a whole lot longer than a couple of years. And so I tell people all the time, my mantra is we need long-term, low-cost, sustainable capital, patient capital that allows us, in, especially in places like Appalachia, to be able to take that capital, use it, recirculate it, keep it going multiple times in order to really have impact within the community where you really start to see transformational change in that community. Kent, do you find that this is also a moment in time for your institution? Most definitely, especially given the numbers you just quoted, Brian, about the loss of banking institutions and branches in rural America. Um, uh so that if we go with that premise that that's good that is a problem then yes it's a moment of time in time right now and and interestingly uh, just a little background i met donna like 10 years ago (laughs) um at my first cdfi event and uh, we had some conversations about cfi loan funds and 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 how they can help and so the model that we have at First Southwest Bank actually is we have a CDFI bank and we have we established an affiliated nonprofit that is not CDFI, but acts very much like a CDFI and brings funds, non-depository funds to to the communities we serve. So it's actually the model that Donna was kind of describing there. Um, and this moment in time with the influx of, of capital from organizations who have certain missions aligned with us um, has really helped us 
allow community because we share that with the other community banks and in a collaborative way it, it's allowed us to um, help community banks become even better community banks um, as kind of a facilitator of these funding sources and these programs through um, our nonprofit as well as the CDFI bank and to you know fulfill our mission in, in rural parts. Well, you both pointed to this being that moment in time where um, where there may be opportunity out there. So I know this is a big question, but uh, and I'll put it to you both, uh, Kent, you first. Are you bullish or are you bearish on the future of banking in rural America? Well, being a CDFI and, and having an affiliated nonprofit, um, I'm uh, bullish on uh, on. A, a new kind of banking, really, for rural parts of America, and uh, and especially with technology, what it can do today. Um, yeah, I'm I'm bullish. We have a business model that we're we're working on diligently to um, to help turn around this this decline of capital availability. Donna, how about you? Feeling good? I am a big bull. I'll be bullish on. <laughs> On uh, on uh, rural America as it relates to CDFIs and t- as well, Brian. You know, it's uh, it's interesting because I think we we talk a lot about capital. We know how to lend very well, very effectively. We do it safely and soundly. Um, but there are also those other pieces that are important. Uh, Kent just mentioned technology. That's a big priority for us as well. Um, And so we are pushing as hard as we can to not only help our members enhance their technology, but also help our own organization. So as I mentioned at the top of this program, there are 423 counties in Appalachia. We want to go deeper. We want to have even greater impact in those areas that are uh, where there are persons of color, communities of color, very rural uh, areas where there are small businesses, uh, owners who may not even know what a CDFI is. Uh, we want to f- not only find them, we want to have uh, productive uh, interactions and relationships, uh, lending relationships, capital relationships, investment relationships uh, with these sectors as well. And so technology will play a big role for us. Uh, I've heard Nicole Elam from the National Bankers Association talk about technology and talent. And I think for us, it's the same thing. We want to bring uh, people into the CDFI ecosystem. Uh, And so we need those additional resources to help us fulfill our mission. And we also need the opportunities. We need to look at ways in which we can further generate revenue, uh, how we can uh, increase our earned income. Uh, we, you know, we are a nonprofit, so we're not out here trying to make trillions of dollars, but we also want to do well and do good at the same time. And we want to make sure that our organization has the capacity to grow at the same time that we're serving our community. So, um Yes, I'm bullish, very much bullish, and have a great deal of faith and confidence in the work that the industry is doing today. Well, Donna Gambrell of Appalachian Community Capital and Kent Curtis of First Southwest Bank uh, in Colorado, thank you both for taking us down this country road to, to talk about access to credit in rural America. Thank you both. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brian.